Hello and welcome to We Bought a Mic, a pop culture podcast. Joining you once again from a Zoom remote uh, broadcast. And we have a very special topic today with a very special guest. So why don't we all introduce ourselves, fellas? I'm Ernest. I am Hunter. This is going to surprise you guys, but for this one, I'm actually Skimble Shanks. Whoa. Uh, we thought we lost cat. him. I'm cat very on the excited. railway train. I'm, I'm yeah. very excited to meet Skimble Shanks. I've yeah, how's it lots feel? about him. As a fan. <laughs> it's nerve-wracking. My heart is beating, and I'm sweating, and I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm awestruck. I'm Colin Goody. Uh, thanks for having me on to talk about uh, I believe Magnolia, right? That's what we're talking Magnolia. About. <laughs> The PTA uh, opus from 1999, and we're so glad to have you on, Colin. We uh, we have heard through the grapevine that this uh, might be your favorite Paul Thomas Anderson movie. Whoa! <laughs> we'll it, find it, out more about that. I was gonna say it is, and I'm not really sure why. <laughs> yeah, we'll get we'll get into it because it's a fucking right. doozy well, uh, of a we'll movie. We'll see you later, Colin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's 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 my input. I just really like it, but I can't elaborate on that at all. <laughs> uh, yeah, so you know, movies have been uh, canceled, postponed, rescheduled, all sorts of things as the uh, the virus uh, does its its virus thing. And we are trying to figure out how to keep the podcast interesting and how to keep it uh, fresh and cool. So we figured, why not watch a critically acclaimed auteur picture that we had never seen before? Yeah, but then only Hunter saw Trolls World Tour. uh, (laughs) Yeah, I was the only person who did the homework, so it's fine. This is always how it goes. Um, so yeah, historically, one of my favorite things about movies has been that uh, they're recorded, and therefore you can watch them again at once they're already filmed. Yeah, um, and that opens up an avenue for us to watch an older movie that is actually better than almost any of the new movies that we always fucking talk about. Pretty much, yeah. Um, I mean, we what an insane idea. We just did this a couple weeks ago when we did uh, Midnight Cowboy, courtesy of you, Colin, who beat us, beat our asses completely smothered us in the fantasy film league and you chose that as your pick um and we what do you think about our episode on it colin i i really enjoyed listening to that episode because it's one of my favorite movies so i just had a great time uh listening to you guys discuss it and i'm glad you guys enjoyed it oh it's so good yeah yeah so it it really is an amazing movie uh just fyi i always listen to we bought a mic in my car (laughs) just to give you (laughs) Give so you, you a, haven't been so, listening to it at yeah. all? Not, uh, unfortunately, not as much because I haven't really <laughs> been driving at all. Or you go, you go sit in your car, you park I, it. <laughs> I, I keep up. So I keep will, updates though. I, I, I we see. We will have to. Posting. We will have to cut all this from the podcast because this is not a good endorsement. We bought Mike. We bought Mike. It's a podcast for your home. Yeah, it's a podcast to listen to while you're self isolating. Alexa, play with Bam. <laughs> um, oh, I wish. Well, uh, I was wondering if you guys wanted to talk about PTA for just a couple minutes before we talk about Magnolia and what his films kind of mean to us and what do we think of them as a, a filmmaker. Well, yeah, you yeah. start out. Uh, first PTA movie I saw was There Will Be Blood. 
Hell yes. That was back in 2007, 2008, whenever it won uh, some of the Oscars and it was nominated. And I was just kind of like, whoa. <laughs> uh, I've seen a, pretty much all of his movies except for Phantom Thread, Inherent Vice. And then he has like a deep cut, like first movie before Boogie Nights called Hard Eight. Yeah. I don't know if you guys have ever heard much about that one. I've never seen it, but... Yeah, me me neither. I feel like it's uh, kind of his most unseen movie. And yeah, it he, wasn't commercially released, I don't even think. It yeah. is streaming on Prime Video right now, and oh, I think okay. a couple other places. So if anything, this might be a, a good opportunity to do a little bit of a PTA refresher. Uh, that's the only one... Now that I've seen Magnolia, that's the only other one that I still need to see. And I still need to uh, do a little bit of a Boogie Nights refresher because I did see that during uh, college and a lot of Soylent uh, was involved in I, time. I understand. <laughs> yes, I, I was a, a little bit Boogie Nighted uh, in the brain while I saw the, the film. So I don't remember. You, uh, you were coming? <laughs> the, only, the only way to watch Boogie Nights is like while... Uh, orgasming and also doing like a mountain of cocaine right that's how paul thomas anderson wrote that book wrote that movie and similarly he was also doing a lot of cocaine while do, while watching magnolia um i can I, uh, it explains the runtime you just didn't yeah. want to get anything out of it uh, um i i need to see more paul thomas anderson movies like i i need to see uh punch drunk love I don't really remember if I've seen Boogie Nights. If I did, I was young, so I don't even count that as me actually watching the movie. So I need to see that. Punch Drunk Love and Inherent Vice are my, my major blind spots. What Punch about you, Drunk Drew? Love is a good one for sure. Uh, every movie of his that I've seen has become one of uh, my favorite movies, and I have not seen nearly enough of them. That said, I watched Magnolia for the first time today, uh, really just like fucking ripped a hole inside of me. Uh, truly, you know, he's he's a master. And this is a, a Coke movie for sure. Like, you know, no one was saying no. This was a yes and movie mm -hmm. to the max. It's so goddamn long. Uh, Paul Thomas Anderson will tell you the same. He said back in 2003, during an interview, he said that that will forever be the best movie he's ever made. And then in 2015... And beyond, multiple times now, he has said that movie needs to be shorter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, we'll get into this uh, when we when we dive in. But I feel like because of the sprawling nature of the story and all the the ensemble of the characters, I I don't see how you can have a two hour version of this movie. No, not two. He never says he wants it to be that short. He just um, in he did a Reddit AMA where he said it very succinctly. I wrote down the quote because it cracked me up. Uh, Maybe like 2.30, 2.40. Yeah, someone said, if you could go back, what's one thing you'd tell yourself making Magnolia? And he said, chill the fuck out and cut 20 minutes. Okay. So yeah. So I was going to say, I think that it's harder to cut 20 minutes from this movie than it is to cut 40 minutes. Because if anything, you just cut an entire plot line. It's, I wouldn't cut any like i wouldn't trim up any of the individual plot lines right you just have to take to, one of them out is you're just like i'm sorry john c Riley, you're out oh or absolutely not we are not getting rid of john c no, I'm not, why I, is I'm that not the one you pick? 
I just I was just throwing a name out there. We are getting rid of Whiz Kid Donnie, so I don't know who we're cutting. That's actually a great question, Hunter. What character subplot? If you have to cut one, who? Do you- I'm gonna I'm gonna have to sit on that one for a little bit. Maybe we'll we'll return to that one later on the pod because I you you don't cut Tom. Don't you fucking cut Tom. Oh no way! I mean, you, no way. you do need Tom. Tom is kind of like the moral compass of the movie, so you. Yeah. Cut him. But yeah, I I mean, I also I'm not going to cut William H Macy out of any movie. Oh, he's lovely. So he yeah, has no, some so. of the best, some of the best uh, lines. A lot like of a lo- the best lines. Yeah, a lot of the like the big quotes that I hear are coming from from my name uh, is donnie smith and i have lots of love to give <laughs> he just wanted braces man yeah I'm donnie He's smith from tv hellbent on getting those braces to impress brad really? so i oh that's such a good plot line i i want to i want to share a couple more pta thoughts before we we dive in i i just want to say that i i did put him on my fan or on my uh, director draft that we did uh, he was one of my legends that I got to to yeah. draft, and after seeing this movie, I'm just like, "Fuck yes!" Like he is so good, so talented. Yeah, but I, so I I love Phantom Thread, but I feel like his peak was The Master and um, There Will Be Blood. I feel like that's like a two hander masterpiece of of um, filmmaking right there from him, and. It's funny, like thinking about his entire filmography, because it's not like this guy is fixated on a single theme that he keeps returning to or a single way of putting his movies together or approach to storytelling or anything. Um, But you can always tell that there is a fixation on characters and that the plot is always secondary, right? When you think about the master, what the hell is the plot of that movie? I have no idea, you know? Like, there's some things with Scientology, maybe. Guy makes uh, alcohol, moonshine stuff. It's all about the characters. That's what you remember. And with Magnolia, I think that that's like, it's, it's a perfect kaleidoscopic mosaic of different characters intertwining with each other and obviously there is a lot more plot in this movie than it is than there is in something like the master but if you're going to take one thing away from pta as a filmmaker is that he's so enamored with great characters and the stories that these characters are in are just they're just ways to deliver the characters to us. They're not really that important. Uh, and I love when filmmakers do that. I love when filmmakers just think of scenarios to put our characters in so that it's the most effective delivery system of him putting whatever's on his mind into these characters. Um, and I was going to to build off of that. Another thing that I was going to say, that's one thing that is just a sign of all of the all time great filmmakers is that whenever they whenever there is like some kind of a nitpick or something with their movie, it's not because they're bringing something up with nothing to say. If anything, it's because he's trying to say too much in one movie. And that's something that is like if you are going to nitpick this movie, it's that. There are too many themes 
in this movie. Like if, yeah. if this movie, if he tried to do this now, this would be a eight episode HBO miniseries, and you would just elongate these storylines even more. Like it's a miracle that oh. this movie got made. I would like, watch I, the I, shit I would, out of that. Yeah. That sounds incredible. Yeah. Like, I mean, I'm I'm happy that this does exist as it does, but I I think Paul Thomas Anderson is always somebody who is thinking about themes that are very simple uh for so many different people. Like whenever you get into themes of like whether it is uh childhood adult relationships or I, all these other things that we'll get into whenever we get into the movie itself about regret and all these kind of themes mm-hmm. that he takes simple ideas and he makes them more complex and I he think, makes, but it's still, it's grounded in the end. I think the one major theme that I take away from Magnolia is crisis. Like all the characters mm-hmm. are having this like pivotal crisis at the exact same moment because the whole movie is kind of, uh, kind of, starts off as like hey could you believe that so and so happened it was connected this way and then for the next three hours it's like could you believe that all this is happening to the same people in the same town yeah and i I guess the answer is probably like yeah it kind of makes you think it's like yeah that's probably happening literally like right this second people are just losing their shit and they don't (laughs) even realize that it's like a domino effect or something like that so or i mean that's what i just think about from it we're in like this horrible coronavirus crisis. Like, without get, we will save it for like a spoiler section. But the ending of this movie is one of those things. Like, man, can you believe this happened? If somebody said this to me, like, oh yeah, like six months ago, or like, yeah, there's gonna be a shortage on masks, and you're gonna have to wait in a line to get into a Publix because like the world's gonna be going to shit i'd be like no what so like is this any less believable than anything else that we see in these movies which is kind of the whole point yeah and it's uh you're right that thematically there's a shitload covered but i think it does effectively uh it doesn't just touch on a lot of themes like it fully encompasses a lot of themes it's just that it is so damn long and i would not in no way would I cut out a single plot line. There's no plot line I would want to get rid of, but I did notice, uh, you know, people speak about like editing based on instinct. And there were um, a number of instances where my instinct would have been, okay, the scene is becoming redundant at this point. We, yeah. we could move on, even if it's just like 30 seconds here and there. Um, it would have, you know, it would have been a little nip tuck job. Uh, that said though, uh, every, a plot line involved in this movie has at least one of the better performances of the century. <laughs> Hell yeah. The, these performances are unfucking believable. Uh, PTA, obviously, very uh, well known for A, attracting great talent, and then B, getting great performances out of them. Uh, this is no difference. This is a lot of the same people he worked with on Boogie Nights and like his other films. Uh, but he was 29 when this movie came out Unreal. Yeah, it's insanely young 27 when he made boogie nights are you fucking how does that happen <laughs> it, it doesn't happen honestly yeah, it really it, doesn't. It, it just doesn't <laughs> so to your point about the performances we need to talk about tom cruise I was like, going to say, how yeah. long can we make it in this podcast without talking about <laughs> well, Frank fucking TJ Mackey? Let's, let's hold off just a bit. Let's share a little bit more overall thoughts 
from everybody and then we can have the Tom Cruise conversation. So <laughs> I'll just say that this is the type of movie that begs to be revisited. Like right from the fucking incredible opening sequence that we get, I knew, oh shit, I'm not going to get everything out of this from a first viewing. I, there is just no, there's just from that first five, 10 minutes, I knew that I was in for something really dense and, and labored over by a cinematic master that there was no way that I was going to get as much out of it as possible from just one viewing. It, it begs to be rewatched and analyzed. So mm -hmm. that's one thing that I can already tell that, holy shit, this is one of those movies that you're just, you just need to allow yourself to uh, revisit it you know, a year from now or, or two years from now or whatever to really let your take on it stew around and shift and, and grow because this is the perfect example of uh, uh, something that we run into in this podcast a lot, which is uh, how can you possibly have a take on a movie a day after you've seen it? Right. You know, and we, we do our best, but with something like this, it's like, holy shit. You know, I mean, we're going to share a lot of feelings about it on this podcast, but this is just one of those ones where like, I could see myself rewatching this movie a year from now or five years from now and, and just getting even more out of it. And, yeah, and, definitely. and just thinking about it in completely different ways. Also, you mentioned the editing. A lot to unpack there with the editing, very kaleidoscopic and mosaic type editing and the way the montages, there's so many montages. It almost feels like the whole movie is a montage and it mm. just builds and builds and builds. And at times it does feel a little bit exhausting, a little bit uh, pretentious maybe, but to me it is effective because it, you you get the idea that it all it all is one single piece, and yeah, I got that feeling. And also, I mean, very famously, PTA got the final cut for this movie, which is a massive deal for a director in his twenties. But New Line gave yeah. him the okay to the director's cut would be the theatrical cut. And that is why this movie is three hours and 15 minutes long. It's self-indulgent. It's, it, you can't deny that it isn't, but and he, knew it back he, then. he makes it work. He knew it. Like I, I've watched the whole, uh, on YouTube, you can find the entire like hour plus long behind the scenes documentary. Definitely worth watching. Um, you get a great sense of PTA as a guy. Uh, and he, everyone involved with the movie was making fun of how long it was back then. Before they even shot it, they were making fun of it. <laughs> Um, and he just didn't care because he was like, I get to do this. Like they said, I can do it. I'm going to do it. It's my movie. I have a yeah, question I mean, for the, the Wabam crew real quick. Go for it. Uh, when did you guys first hear about Magnolia? Cause I feel like it was a movie that came out and yeah. people were like, what the fuck was that? I've so, heard about it forever. Yeah. I, as long as I can remember, I've heard about Magnolia, about Tom Cruise, about Julianne Moore, about, you know, the sprawling nature of it and it being like, PTA's maybe most divisive film I kind of want to say potentially it could be um, um yeah yeah I, I've, I've known about Magnolia for forever just because it 
it sometimes gets by people who dislike it lump it in with movies like crash and cloud atlas which it's you can see why in the mosaic nature of it all yeah. but i mean who, obviously who it, it should go <laughs> without letterbox users and others it's, it's I, I have seen that same, like type of plot of like loosely connected characters large cast yeah, but they're also good examples you you could be nice about if you wanted to compare it to movies, you know? I mean, the guy that made Crash from- d- definitely saw Magnolia and was like, oh, I can do that. For sure. Yeah, well, I'm saying that from the perspective of, like, the negative view on this movie yeah. is people that compare it to that. But, I mean, this movie is also, it is, like, you guys are saying, it is, I knew it as a blank check. I knew this as, like, an all-time blank check movie. PTA had control over the poster. Like they wanted to market this movie as a Tom Cruise leading movie. And PTA said, no, this is a mosaic. We will have it just this flower with everybody's faces on it, not just Tom Cruise as the lead. Like he really controlled everything to the point where you guys were talking about the editing. I found the editing to be almost frustrating at certain times because it would be in the middle of this incredible moment, and then you cut out of it yeah. to go see like the Whiz Kid or something like this. And I like all of these pieces, but I'm like, God, I just I felt like I was being like thrown around in this cycle. Like I was just I couldn't escape. I was like in a teacups ride that I kept spinning around between all of them in a way that I I think is more effective for the movie overall. Right. But- I think that's the point is that you you may find yourself like having trouble connecting to certain plot lines or characters because you're in it and then you get cut out of it. But I think the movie has a really good way of making that feeling of kind of disconnect carry through it so that when you return to those plot lines you feel like you've been like you've been wanting it like you've been waiting for it you know like he makes it he makes you feel like this desire to return to the storylines because you've been yanked away from them do you have an mvp of the movie Uh, all right let's get into it let's get into it all right it's time i think this is tom cruise's best performance I agree. I agree with you, Ernest. Yeah. yeah. How did he not win? An, how did he not win an Oscar for this performance? This, this is, is unfathomable. Every line that he says in the movie. This is some of the best acting I've ever seen in my life, and this is a movie with with fucking Philip Seymour Hoffman in it, and fucking Julianne Moore, and you know John C. Riley, like just absolutely stacked ensemble, but. And they're all great. They're all amazing, and they all get their moments. But yeah, but it's Cruz. It's it's Tom Cruise. Cruise is yeah. He's on another uh, plane in this movie. Yeah, not on, on, on he's levitating above the camera. Yeah. <laughs> and you know what they say? Respect the cock. <laughs> the he's cunt. he's slimy. He's filthy. He's got that little man bun. Did and he? the way he's like prancing around on stage, like. 
like acting like a, a woman like what does he say he's like big titted mary jane and he's like cupping his hands and his chest and everyone's just cheering him yeah, on like yeah oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah it's fucking insane did, did tom cruise invent man the modern man bun in this movie <laughs> i mean i thought that it was i thought that he invented it but i thought it was from the last samurai but he actually did it five years earlier exactly with this movie. And the and the last samurai is like supposed to be a period piece, you know, whatever. So I mean, man buns have been around for millennia in different <laughs> cultures and iterations, but the modern man bun as we know it today in the 21st century, I think originated in 1999, the day that Magnolia was released in the theaters, and people saw in all its glory, just sitting on I, on Tom's head. It kind of really want to look does up like office for for Magnolia. So I don't think it was so. A- I did. I did see it. it. Did make a profit. I think the budget was around thirty six, and it made like forty. Yeah, forty six. It made it made back its money mostly because of the cast and because people were like, "Yo, this Tom Cruise performance is fucking insane." I really like. It makes me so mad that he was nominated, but I think that he should have won for this performance because you see the full range of Tom Cruise, and I feel like this was almost. 1999, one, it was a very emotionally exhausting year for him, where we have him working with Kubrick and PTA in the same year, both like getting him to draw off his own personal experiences and shooting it to death until he's actually sobbing real tears in front of the camera. Like we have impeccable shit. And also, I think if he would have won an Oscar for this movie, then I think that Tom Cruise's next 20 years is completely different. I don't think that we are preparing for Mission Impossible 7. I think there's a chance that he could be like an actual film A-lister instead of a movie A-lister, if you know what I mean. Yeah, that's that's such an interesting like what if scenario because he was chasing that Oscar. You know, you go from Jerry Maguire to Eyes Wide Shut to then Magnolia. Like those, that run right there in the late 90s was the I want my Oscar run. But it wasn't just, it wasn't just that. It was the, I am a fucking talented actor. You know, it it, it was him flexing his chops. And, you know, once the 2000s hit, obviously we still got great stuff like um, Minority Report and, vanilla sky and collateral but it wasn't i want my oscar um so i am curious to see if like if he does put a sort of bookend on the mission movies if he will now that he is an aging man maybe return to that a little bit return to that role return with uh pta I don't know. If, I, I don't, don't know about the same that. character. Maybe <laughs> yeah. not the same character, but if he were to work with PTA again, I would love that. That would be amazing. Yeah. He's do you think that if he would have? Do you think that if he would have won an Oscar, he could have been the Daniel Day Lewis, and he could he could have been like the Paul Dano role in in uh, There Will Be Blood, or he could have been the Adam Sandler role in Punch Drunk Love. I can't no. imagine doing either one of those. No. It's just hard to imagine, especially a uh, punch drunk love, him playing like a shy, shy boy. <laughs> yeah, no, it, Tom wouldn't do that because um, I'm pretty sure that PTA wrote um, punch drunk love thinking 
about Adam Sandler. Yeah, he wrote like, it for Adam. Uh, yeah, and for this movie, he was ecstatic to get Tom Cruise. It was literally probably the biggest star you could have gotten that year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was huge. He won the Globe. He got nominated for the Oscar. Um, for supporting, it, right? Oh, he didn't yeah. go for lead. He no, didn't go for no. lead. Yeah, There's no lead. He has probably, in this movie, he has probably like the fifth most screen time. Yeah. Um, Because I want to shout out some of the other performances. Uh, Julianne Moore is obviously incredible. Uh, This is known about her. She got a lot of praise. But the two mirroring... So, wait, wait, wait. Real quick, before we move on from Julianne Moore, is it a great performance or is it just a lot of a performance? So, here's the thing It is great. No, I'm not going to hear this, Hunter. Every (laughs) woman in this movie is written in a very, we'll call old school fashion, where they're just hysterical the whole movie. That's one knock that I do have on the movie. It's just a bunch of women being like, ah, someone help me. The scene of her in the pharmacy, don't call me lady, is like the most overacting that I have ever seen in a movie. Don't get me wrong, I loved it. I, it almost provided a humor to the movie that it really needed her yeah, moments. Yeah, Magnolia does have some humor in it. It is oh, kind of very dark, funny darkly, darkly comedic. But yeah, oh, I think yeah. that that role was just written to be overacted. He writes his, his female characters like they're in fucking Hitchcock movies. Like it's very yeah. old school in quotation marks, meaning you could you could have issues with it because it is like, it would be nice to see her let in a less cartoonish role because there's no way to ground that monologue that's an insane monologue to give uh, no matter who's giving it so she's incredible but the two mirroring uh performances of the old men on their deathbeds oh. so philip baker hall is playing this uh longtime game show host who's like you know universally beloved except he's you know a raging alcoholic who's done horrible things in his past uh he you know heart-wrenching performance uh a lot of it comes down to the mechanics of the movies for his part because he's not confined to just one space. However, Jason Robards is in a bed the whole movie and he's giving one of, I'd say, one of the best like dying guy performances of all time. And that is because he was dying when he made this movie. Oh, oh shit. Fuck. I, didn't, I, didn't, he, I didn't even realize that. He had just come out of... Uh, like a giant battle with I think cancer where he had been in a coma and lost like 40 pounds and he died in 2000 uh and and there are all these little details in his performance I found this out after I watched the movie but I I kept on writing down everything he did because like just the way that he would give these like little whimper like breaths in the middle of like a very powerful like manly monologue as if to say like I am like my myself is betraying myself like it's just so yeah, he he is doing all the little things in his performance in which so many old people, uh, just people in general who are doing a performance of someone like on their deathbed go way overboard with it. And he's given a lot of monologues that give him the opportunity to do that. Like he has a lot of extremely like uh, profound, like way, like very wordy monologues, but his acting grounds it in such a way that uh, it makes it a really special performance for me. He's also, uh, he also has like a little segment in the behind the scenes documentary where he like talks about how this role was like, you know, crazy for him because he was just in a coma and like lost much weight and 
uh, like may have died. And then he died like the year after this came out. So rest in peace, uh, Robards, you fucking nailed that. He was maybe like my second or third favorite uh, part of this entire movie. So was, was PTA looking for an actor that was, you know, like no. sick? No, well, no, he didn't know. He just contacted Robards. Robards had, you know, has been in like a ton of, uh, very esteemed movies like way way long ago i think he was in like butch cassidy or something oh, so, wow. no so i was gonna say that uh so i i've been doing a ton of research about this movie and uh pta said while he was making it that he wanted to make his version of like a robert altman movie that was directed by martin scorsese yeah which <laughs> makes so much sense but jason Herberts is a huge robert altman guy and a lot of people in this cast reached out to PTA because they all love Boogie Nights. Like Tom Cruise, he personally reached out to PTA and was like, yeah, I want to be in your next movie. And PTA was just hyped for it. And the same thing with Jason Robarts, because one, he was a fan of Boogie Nights, but also he um, he was trying to look for a role where he could kind of come to terms with his own life. Like in just kind of this very uh, mortuous kind of way, like trying come at peace with himself with one last dying role. All right. So I, I think we should uh, get spoilery here um, so we can talk about all the different storylines in depth. So does anybody have any final spoiler-free thoughts about how they felt about the no, movie? No, but it's on Netflix. Just watch it. It's long. You have nothing to do. Just watch it. It's yeah. a fucking great movie. It's, it's one a, of the best movies you can stream, period, on any streaming service right now. It's a big boy. It's a three-hour, uh, but it is on Netflix, and it is kind of the perfect thing to dive into during self-quarantine uh, isolation times where... You know, you don't have to watch it in one sitting. I didn't. Uh, but if you can, you know, you should because that's what PTA intended. But it's it's the type of thing you want to sink yourself into. And uh, Netflix is just, it's right there. So go for it. All right. Then with that, I think we can head into spoilers for Magnolia. So again, go see it. Then come back and listen to our spoiler talk right now. So the frogs <laughs> just get right into it immediately. The frogs. So I, I was uh, trying the to elephant in the room. I was talking to Drew about this before we started recording because he saw the little documentary. Apparently, it's mostly real frogs, not a lot wow, of computer-generated okay. effects. Yeah, you, you see yes. the the how they do it in the documentary. It's very very cool. Uh, for when they're landing on the hood of the car, particularly, they have to really fucking slam on like that windshield. Um, so they're actually attached to strings and then just shot down, I guess, maybe with compression or something like that. Um, I don't know if they are real frogs. They certainly look like it. Hopefully not. Um, well, no, so I was at, so this might be, I was doing some other research. It wasn't PTA like that he said, but that they made like 37,000 silicone frogs. Yeah, that was, that <laughs> like was, they the made all of these. Because the effects budget alone for this movie was $10 million um, for a movie that is not 
uh, about its effects, you know? Yeah. Uh, so that, I mean, that's an astounding number. And they do, you know, during all the scenes where it's raining frogs, they rain fucking frogs. And that's why it looks good. I, I, there's maybe one shot where you can definitely see some CG happening. And yeah. uh, I was really pleased by that because the premise of raining thousands and, you know, in theory, millions of frogs, that could get really ugly visually, you know? I, so I like I how, wanted, uh, uh, go on, Hunter. Oh, no. So I wanted to say about the frogs themselves, because I did have a similar reaction to most people when watching this movie, where as soon as it happens, I'm like, uh, what? <laughs> like, what's going on now? <laughs> um, so I was in doing some of my research that I did. I don't know if you have noticed this with how many times you've seen this, Colin, but apparently the number 28 is like a recurring number in the movie yeah. that pops up in things, which is actually a reference, or 82, excuse me. And that's actually a reference to Exodus 8-2, which says, if you refuse to let them go, I will send a plague of frogs on your whole country. So it's oh, literally okay. just quoting the plague from the Bible. Yeah, this is referenced like over uh, 60 times in the movie or something like that. And yeah. there are paintings of frogs fucking everywhere. A lot of them painted by Fiona Apple, actually. I, I didn't pick up on that. But the one thing I love about the frog scene is how like violent and like loud and scary it is. It almost felt like real. It's like, yeah, that's how it would be. Yeah. <laughs> the cars they are covered in like goo and like blood. Than, uh, Exactly. Uh, he did it better I, than Watchmen did. Yeah, what I mean, my did, what did favorite... Watchmen do? The squid? Yeah, yeah. The squid. <laughs> yeah. Um, I was going to say my favorite use of the frogs uh, whenever they were falling was actually with, um, uh, I'm blanking on her name, but the cokehead uh, plot line. Yeah, yeah, I'm not sure who that actress was. She's doing she's doing a bunch of coke and then like you just see like the silhouette, the shadow of like a single frog going down behind her. And she's like kind of looking up very confused. Like she hasn't noticed at first. She sees it through the reflection of a TV screen. Like, am I hallucinating right now? Have I done too much blow? Like what is going on? And then it just all starts thundering down. I feel like it's definitely the make it or break it part of the movie where someone's watching it, they're like they're like, okay, this is really long and really boring. And then it starts raining, raining frogs. And they're just like, oh, this is stupid. But for me, it just works. I, yeah. I honestly don't see how you would be bored at that point. I mean, granted, you know, there's all kinds of movie watchers out there. And, you know, if you don't have a big explosion or anything, then you're going to yeah. be bored. But this movie has a really good way of keeping you engaged with the way the story is told. And something we haven't brought up yet, the use of music I in this love movie. Or love yeah, it. I mean it's it's uh like legendary status. It's John Brion preceding the the very ending, probably I guess you would call it throughout almost the whole second act, there's just violins non-fucking stop for about an hour. Except for the frogs. When yeah, the well, frogs no, hit there's for the last 45 minutes of the movie, there's no violins. It's it, it's just the sounds of the frogs hitting. There's no music at all during that entire sequence, which is so effective because you'd think that a scene like that would just crank up the fucking music and just make it as dramatic as possible. But in in pulling back, it makes it somehow more grounded, even though it's frogs falling from the sky. 
it, yeah, it just makes it so it's like believable in a weird way. I mean, I did want to give I wanted to give a shout out to Amy uh, Amy Mann who did the whole score because she was nominated for an Oscar for the well, score. she did the original songs and then John Brion did the score. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because she was nominated for a song, but she also—I guess she was also like on the music department. That she did some other stuff, like working with. Because there isn't just her song on right. here. There's also like a lot of great music drops in here. Yeah. A couple, two different Super Tramp songs uh, yeah, in here stranger. that are very well done. Yeah. One oh, thing man. I want to bring up about the frogs is that they were used in the marketing. Because way back oh, in the day, my, my family had Austin Powers VHS, New Line Cinema movie, and they had the trailer for Magnolia on it. And the trailer was just all the characters like stating their name and the camera would like kind of quickly like pan to the next one. And then at the end, there was just like a frog and like a magnolia flower. And I always oh remembered God. that. <laughs> so the that frogs rules. were slightly used in the marketing. And then when you watch the movie, it's like, oh, they're there they are. <laughs> Colin, why all. why don't we take a step back and and tell us why you think this movie is your favorite Paul Thomas Anderson movie? And what what is it about it? And you know, we're in full spoilers now so you can go as in depth as you want, but what is it about this one that you think makes it his best? I love it when a movie surprises me where I put something on and then I just end up completely loving it. I know that's not like a great answer, but that's always a big part where I'm just like, wow, I, I really liked that. I was not expecting that today. So I think that might be in it. I do consider it my favorite movie over three hours. Mm -hmm. um, I think I just love the feeling it gives you of kind of like that buildup where the movie goes for like, almost like half the movie is just kind of like this crescendo of like dread and uncertainty accompanied with the music and all the subplots kind of going together. It just really kind of, I, I kind of just fell for everything that I think PTA wanted the audience to feel for. And I don't know, it just kind of sucked me in. That's all I can really say yeah, is that well, I think once... just the, the surprise of, enjoying it there's, so much. there's like an hour plus of like just great movie to start it off but then once brian's violins kick in and things start getting more tense uh i i like could not look away past that point in the movie even once the violins like cut off because then it's it's more powerful that there's silence it's just it's perfectly deployed use of sound i um, i will say i even though i didn't watch this in one sitting um i didn't really feel the length of it you know, I no, and not at all. Sucks I, you in. Keeps yeah, you moving. exactly. Like the way the story is told, it's just like to me, it doesn't feel like this big sprawling thing because even though it's a huge cast of characters and it's a three hour movie, there's not a lot that actually happens in the movie. It, it the entire story takes place over the course of like. I don't know, a day or two, maybe if that. Yeah, I, I think, think it's like, like an evening and a night. I think it's like morning. all one day. Yeah. Exactly. It's so one, it's one one rainy day in LA. Exactly. So it's it's not like it's this epic sprawling story, but it, it's like it's told in a way that feels that way, even though there's not that much happening. So it's like 
they find this balance between the mundane and the biblical, you know, and it's just, it's unlike anything I've ever seen because I, I was expecting, you know, you, you see a three hour runtime and you get in your head like, okay, this is going to be like a fucking epic. This is going to be a journey. And it really isn't. It's kind of a breeze of a movie. And you're just sucked into these characters and you're sucked into their their crises, as you put it, and you're in it and and you don't turn away until it's over. Um, I am curious, though. I feel like some of the storylines work better than others. Oh, and I will I will sit on my hill. Tom Cruise just holy shit what a fucking performance but uh, i know drew already said that he wouldn't cut a storyline but if you had to what would it be can uh, anybody think of a storyline that they that they would cut i'll oh. i'll go i'll go first julianne moore she's probably the weakest character and drew said uh, her writing kind of aimed to that like you don't really care too much when she like kills herself maybe she's supposed to be unlikable so maybe hers and honestly some of uh like i i do have flaws with this movie there, there's a few things i i actually don't like i i hate the uh the the song sequence when they all sing uh I, oh my God. it's so I, I 90s it's so yeah. 90s <laughs> you know why it's because it's an amy mann song so that is too that is so presumptuous to say, yeah, no, like uh, this old man, all these people from different walks of life, they all know Amy Mann. It's, it's, <laughs> it's not going well, to stop or something like that? It goes, it goes to that point you brought up earlier about the movie having like a weird, dark comedy to it because they even go to Philip Seymour Hoffman and Jason Rubard's on the yeah, bed and they're too. singing too. So it's like, it, you, you gotta like have fun with it at that point when it's like this, dying man and his nurse also joining in into the song it's just it i i didn't think it added enough but i guess you could say it is just kind of it's it takes you off guard it's just a strange decision that was probably fueled by cocaine it didn't fully (laughs) have a song in it too i appreciate it and i was thinking like is is this supposed to be so funny because it's so dumb uh but it didn't fit into that moment in the movie for me because I was ready to start fucking weeping during that part of the movie. And then that happened and I, it kind of took me out for a second, you know? I'm going to be honest. I completely loved that moment in the movie. It's so <laughs> out of left field that I think that maybe, like, it just goes back. We talked about the editing earlier, but, like, the whole editing of this movie, I think that's why you're never bored with it is because you never get stuck in one place for too long. And one point in the movie where you start to maybe feel it a little bit, they break out into a song number. Like, it's so out of left field that I kind of just loved it. It was the ultimate PTA just shooting his fucking shot on the screen. Yeah. I think that that's why I appreciated it so much. Going back to your original question, Ernest, about something to cut, I think you might be right, Colin, that Julianne Moore might be the best one. We were talking about this off mic that, I think I really, one of my least favorite 
uh, things in this movie was uh, Melora Walters' character as uh, Jimmy Gator's daughter. Yeah, just another frantic um, female drug addict. She's frantic. Yeah, no. And so having both her and Julian Moore is redundant. You have two wealthy, like coming from money, drug addict women. Like that's not it's it, if you're gonna cut anything, then you gotta slim up one of those. Yeah. And I you can't cut Claudia, you can't call you can't cut her because she ties into the John C. Riley right. storyline. Well, thing I was is, gonna I, say you can't cut her also because the way she is the link between John C. Riley and um the actual the gator character. Like you, you she's more essential than Julianne Moore's. Exactly. Well, yeah. I don't think that you have to cut either of them. I think that you could just write them better. Yeah, you, you could just make them f- like fully fleshed out characters that have. That's going to add another forty five like, minutes. To this movie, well, we the the, the thing the thing I, I think we're getting at is that the Julian Moore character, even though I believe that that is an amazing performance, and yeah, there is a lot of overacting, but that's this whole movie's fucking overacting at a certain point. Yeah, the whole yeah, movie, fair enough. Yeah, but her character is the only one that you can take out. And the whole thing doesn't collapse in on itself because the way this movie is put together, you can't really, you couldn't really make a movie just about the Tom Cruise storyline or just about the John C. Riley storyline. Like there's not enough there to flesh out a whole nother feature on its own. I mean, I guess that Tom Cruise character, you could make up a whole nother story that he goes on. But what I would you, watch, but I would watch that movie. Oh, I mean, just hell yeah. just him. Just I just want to watch the seduce and destroy VHS tape. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I'm saying, like, what they give you in the context of the film, the events that transpire, none of the storylines hold their own weight as their own independent films, right? So you can't really. They all f- have to fit into the same yeah story that's well, why the whole cool. movie works because it's all that no individual plot line works on its own but they all come together as one single piece they, and they kind of, they kind of complement each other too that's yeah. well that's what i was going to say is that there's there's like pairs in this movie you have uh stanley the young quiz kid and you have quiz kid donnie smith somebody at the end you have the person they're both like wealthy drug addict women but one of them is still involved with her family the other one is like an estranged daughter like there's all these kind of pairings of different people throughout this movie that it does it makes it more difficult to just cut out one plot line another thing i wanted to bring up is the camera work um there's a lot of stillness in this movie and a lot of shots that just like take their time and don't cut around and you have a lot of long takes. Um, and there's times when PTA, this doesn't happen a lot, but I noticed it at least like maybe two, maybe three times where he'll be like, the camera will be like wandering around. And especially early on in the movie, when you don't know what's coming, it almost makes you feel like, PTA is going to go off into yet another plot line that hasn't been introduced yet. Like the camera's just like ready to just leave behind what you were just seeing and go into a completely new thing. So it just keeps you, it just keeps you like really intrigued and yeah, invested. Especially in the beginning that happens a few times where you're like, okay, now we're following her, but she's just leading us to this other storyline. 
um, yeah, I found that extremely cool. Another uh, cool snippet speaking toward uh, the Melora Walters character being essential is the entire inspiration for this movie was actually uh, Amy Mann's music. He was just a big fan of her. Mm -hmm. And specifically the line that Melora says on her date with John C. Riley, where she, it's something like, now that we've met, would you be uh, opposed to never seeing me again? Something like that. Wow. That's what inspired the whole movie. And then also structurally, uh, this really made me laugh. He, he said that uh, one of the first ideas that he had was the frogs uh, raining. And he decided essentially, okay, I'm just going to write and write and write. And then when I don't have anything else to write, I'm just going to make the frogs rain. That's awesome. <laughs> That's, so That's the cocaine That's so speaking, dope. man. He has <laughs> well, fucking I, railed. I know he said before, too, that the Melora Walters character was the character that he most saw himself in, who okay. is a coked out, strung out person. Yeah, like, it's just because of cocaine. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's who he was like. Yeah, I see a lot of myself, well, and in, also uh, he in that, in Claudia. Something in the documentary that everyone keeps saying because uh, PTA obviously he's very outspoken, but he would not go into deep detail about how this movie is autobiographical. He just would say that it is in a lot of ways. Everyone on the set of this movie is saying like, I mean, yeah, P like PTA is going through all this stuff like right now, meaning that like he is addressing some like deep childhood trauma. Maybe not exactly in the vein of her character, but uh, this movie is very much about trauma, about how his father uh, was an actor who like never fully made it, but like got his son into filmmaking from a very young age, maybe made him feel like he was, you know, expected to succeed in the same way as the quiz show kid. Uh, wow. there, there are a lot of different storylines in this have a little bit of PTA in them. Ernest, I did want to, we need to talk uh, more about, oh, sorry, go ahead, Colin. <laughs> All right, I I got the spotlight. One thing I just wanted to note real quick about the camera work is uh that I thought they did really good or not really good but effective was kind of the frantic close-ups that would like rush up on an actor's face and then immediately cut. And yes. When it would cut, the camera's like already panning. I don't know. I just so thought good. that 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 worked for some reason. <laughs> yeah, it does it a I lot mean, too. There's I lots love, of different types of camera work in this movie. There's also like the long takes when they're going with the quiz kids through the like in the back stages of the production studio. I love the little the little fat quiz kid that's like the motherfucker peed his pants. <laughs> we haven't even talked about that 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 actual storyline yet, and that storyline is awesome. It's so good. Stanley I, is denied access to the bathroom. <laughs> That's straight up crisis. denied. Yeah, yeah, he's denied. They won't. She won't let him go. She's like, no. Well, we're going guess back what? Now she's rotting in prison for getting her kid into Stanford illegally. So, oh my uh, God, Felicity <laughs> Huffman. That's right. Yeah. Holy shit. Jokes on her. I really thought. Yeah, I thought that kid did a really great job. The entire premise of that show and the execution of shooting it like it was an actual, uh, you know, shitty uh, cable show was was brilliant. They shot it. They shot like basically a whole episode of it with, you know, TV cameras. Mm -hmm. And then they did the film shooting, like, you know, interspersed into that. Uh, watching PTA direct those kids is also really funny to watch in the documentary. Because um, he's very like, he's so cool. He's extremely candid, you know, uh, doing a lot of cussing. Um, he also, during the run throughs, he will essentially just like be the camera. So like he'll follow the dolly track that's laid down. 
and just like get like right in their fucking face while they're <laughs> delivering lines. I found that to be a That's very great. It's yeah, it's a very cool idea. I want to I want to take this time to give two shout outs to two cameos that happened. Luis Guzman, who that's more than a cameo. He has a role in the film. uh, Self? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Pretty much. (laughs) Uh, He was also in a Boogie Nights, too. Yeah. 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 And also, (laughs) I don't know if anybody (laughs) caught this one. Uh, Clark Gregg. Yes. Agent Agent Phil Coulson himself one has line. one line. That's <laughs> like ca- the camera or guy. The biggest cameo in this movie is Patton Oswald. Yeah, the Blackjack oh, yeah. That's Before very, Patton very Oswald was anybody, Patton Oswald wasn't even known for being a stand-up comedian. Then he was literally a nobody, and he's just thrown in in the opening scene of this movie. <laughs> We we need to talk about John C. Riley. He's the the only one we haven't given uh, time to that has a major um, storyline. I love John C. Riley in this movie, and it's okay. a shame that he's like maybe the third or fourth best uh, actor in the movie because you know again, like I keep saying, Tom Cruise and um, Philip Seymour Hoffman are just like absolute masters of their craft, but. He gives it his all, man. And he is incredible as this like lonely cop who has a heart of gold. Yeah, has a heart of gold, but also just like is is the ultimate uh, boy scout, like do-gooder. And he is low intelligence for sure. That storyline and then William H. Macy's and then a little bit of Hoffman as well cemented this movie for me as like Gen X canon. Because uh, those storylines are about people who are just kind of adrift mm-hmm. in life. Like, they, they don't really know what they're looking for, but they definitely want something else. Right. Um, which is, like, the battle cry of fucking, you know, Gen X. Um, but J- John C. Riley is trying to define himself by his devotion to Christ. And it's like, dude, what are you doing, man? Like, I mean, he's a dumb guy. That's, that's what you do <laughs> when you're dumb. You become a cop and you love Jesus. <laughs> Sorry, everybody. I, Sorry, dude, William H. I mean, I think that the best ver- the best uh, example of that is William H. Macy's character. Like, he's just this dude in Hollywood. He's gay, and he like doesn't know how to actually like talk to this guy that he likes. So he mm-hmm. just is like, "Well, I have very straight teeth, and I'm going to give myself braces so then I can have something to talk about." With this fucking hunk, he was Brad, yeah, Brad the bartender uh, over here. The holy, fully tragic character. How he was a genius and got struck by lightning and literally lost IQ points. Yeah. Oh, that is that's nuts. That's a, that's honestly like a David Lynch character right there. Like that doesn't even yeah. seem like a real thing. Also, he gets I, hit by a frog and like busts all his teeth. Yeah. So he actually needs braces by the end of the yeah. movie. Actually, fucking more than that. Uh, I love the scene between him and his boss, played by Alfred Molina. Yeah, and like they're oh, really yeah. going back at it, back and forth. Like, oh no, you can't do this. You're gonna ask money, and like, he, he, like they find out he's just like, I, I, I need money for my oral surgery, and he's just like, I'm, I'm getting braces, and they're just like, oh, the fuck, you don't need braces. That's in, that's a really funny scene. In my in my brain, that store that he works at is the same one that philip seymour hoffman works at in punch drunk love the like furniture store that uh adam sandler is like calling 
Uh, uh, William H. Macy, a uh, very good friend of PTA's. Yeah. You learn in the doc- he apparently uh, PTA did a good chunk of the writing for the script at William H. Macy's like log cabin somewhere in like the Northeast. He spent a week there and just probably just had an absolute mountain of, of powder. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe, maybe William H. Macy needs nasal corrective surgery and not oral corrective surgery. I know. Yeah. Is Um, there any, we talked about, we keep bringing up Philip Seymour Hoffman, but this is like the most tame performance that he has ever given. Like he is dialing it back so much. A couple of other uh, things. One, I mean, it's wild to think that he was in this and talented Mr. Ripley in the same year, where he's playing almost opposite characters between these two movies. Um, he he but, gets the ultimate heat check award in Talented Mr. Ripley. Oh, every yeah. no. every second that of that performance, he just knocks out of the fucking park. So my favorite bit of research that I did while uh, looking up stuff about this movie is that. So while Tom Cruise is having his big, his Oscar moment where Jason Robarts and he's breaking down crying, you fucking cocksucker, you won't make me cry for you. And it is like truly gut-wrenching. It's the best thing Tom Cruise has ever done. PTA told him because they like were shooting it and Tom Cruise was like, these lines are wrong. And PTA was like, look, your father's like, you have a bad relationship with your father who's now dead. I want you to dial into that. And like, almost like making him like relive like a traumatic thing. And so what you're seeing from Tom Cruise, he's really getting it. And in the background, you can see Philip Seymour Kaufman just sobbing and he is not acting. Like he was so moved by Tom Cruise's performance that they were like, no, we're keeping Philip Seymour Hoffman in the scene here. Cause like Tom is just fucking going for it right now. But once again, keep in mind, he also made a movie with Stanley Kubrick this year. So maybe that's why Tom Cruise is a little bit fucked up in the head, is that he made two emotionally exhausting movies in one calendar year. Actors are fucking psychos in general. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, well, especially Tom Cruise, fucking Scientologist. I just sent a screenshot to the Zoom chat of Tom Cruise giving the performance of a lifetime in that scene you were just talking about. And just just look at his face, man. Like, holy shit. And then you can see PSH in the background there. Now, I'm about to send y'all another um, another screenshot of oh Tom Cruise in a different scene in this film. And I want us to, to dissect what is happening in this, uh, in this scene. Because this is, one. Uh, this is in the chat of the, of the Zoom call. Look at that fucking bod, man. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so right before he sits down for the big interview with the reporter lady, oh man, he is on another plane of existence, like taking off his clothes, going on and on about the power of the cock and all this shit. Just absolute nonsense, which, by the way, I love, love the scene where he gets back on the stage after the interview and starts oh. having like a freak out. That's a long take, probably the longest in the whole movie. Where he's realizing he the table. Yeah. And he, yeah realizing the, the tables and the bullshit that he's feeding these poor idiots. And he can't handle it because that's what he's built his entire life on. But 
that happens after this moment um, that we're looking at in this screenshot where he is just in the whitey tighties sprawling out and it's almost like animalistic to a certain point like he's like a dog or something yeah, he's just, very he's very aggressive towards the the woman giving the interview oh, which yeah. I've, I've seen her pop up in other movies and like bit roles she's she's really good i want to see her very good. I, I, oh, I know it's on the tip of my tongue of what else she was in her name is april grace uh she was in a little film called uh joker 2019 um you, know, you might have heard of that <laughs> oh, one okay right on she, oh, yeah. she's also in whiplash I am that, legend. That was it. She plays the guy, uh, the the woman in Whiplash, who like gets Andrew to out out uh, J.K. Simmons Fletcher. There you go. The yeah, That's yeah. She's like a That's lawyer. A, it's a great that yeah. guy. Yeah, that gal. Um, no, she, I mean, she's, she's really she's, good. I love that character because we have this like eccentric madman just like losing his fucking mind, and she just reels him in. Let's get down to reality, oh, buddy. Yeah, she owns him. She's like, just yeah, put she, on your mic, sit down. Yeah. <laughs> and down. she like, just in that interview scene, she cuts out all of the bullshit of the Frank character and like gets him to like actually be like, stop just fucking bullshitting with me and tell me the truth. And then it ends with just that that close up on Tom Cruise's face where she's like, what are you doing? He's just like, quietly judging you waiting out <laughs> yeah. the clock there's, there's a lot sitting there in silence until like they're like all right it's time <laughs> interviews over there's a lot of like dead like straight at the camera shots in that scene where they're just like staring into the lens of the camera yeah. and i i don't know if pta does that a lot but he definitely does that in the master in the scenes between Amy Adams and Joaquin. And he just has a way of framing that close up where you're just locked in, man. You're in it. So fun fact, another fun research thing. So this is also a very like 80s, 90s thing. That movie, like at the time, you could call that number and it was Tom Cruise. If you called one eight seven seven team her. You would get the Tom Cruise recording to Philip Seymour Hoffman. It went on for like three and a half minutes. Oh, man. Not 99, man. A different time. What a time. What a time. Yeah, that's... I, uh, I, I specifically have a question for, for Drew. Now, obviously, Hunter and Ernest, you, you can answer as well. But we all know Drew is a TV kid <laughs> growing yeah. up. Obvious. Obvious stuff, right? And I know Drew and uh, Hunter and you as well, Ernest, all love Jeopardy. So I was going to ask Drew, uh, did you particularly enjoy the game show and like TV network aesthetic that the movie had to offer? Yes. That's one of my favorite subplots. One billion percent, yes. The only partially absurd thing about it is that this is a live game show. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sure. That's the, only, that's the only like silly thing. But the, the uh, set design of it, I love the premise of the show I love and um, the creativity of the questions, because this is, you know, in any other movie, it would be really easy to just write like some base trivia questions, but they're like, Oh, you're at a picnic and there's music playing and they're, they're going to play three notes and those three letters spell something that'll be at a picnic. It's like, that is (laughs) way more thought than you ever needed to put into a TV game show in a movie, but it made it uh, 10 times better. 
Yeah, it's so cool because it's a perfect blend of Jeopardy and Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader? Like together, like those two ideas in one movie or in one game show. I think that's all like really cool. And also, unfortunately, another like unfortunate parallel to real life is uh, the ending of Gator's life is unfortunately kind of like Alex Trebek. Right no, now. no, Alex Trebek did not oh, yeah. his daughter. <laughs> no, not saying that. Alex Trebek is a fucking, he is a saint. He is a god. He is the greatest host of all time in game show history. Not saying that he did anything malicious like that, but just of seeing like somebody who's been on air for 30 plus years who is now has cancer and you're watching them age. It's unfortunately it, it did as soon as I saw that and it was announced that it was eight, like it did, it made me think of Trebek. Made me sad. Well, to that point, I think that you know, a lot of people might feel like the the little plot wrinkle of the of the molesting might be unnecessary because you know we 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 have we already have so much happening in this movie that what is the point of adding that as well but it, it's it just goes back to that original idea of um there being a crisis at hand at every turn in this story right so it's it's it is a little bit unnecessary given all of the interlocking pieces that are already on the table. But because the movie is about this sort of, uh, I guess, uh, inescapable uh, crisis that all humans are, are headed towards, it just adds to that point of like, yeah, well, of course oh, the guy the is also a molester. This is why the uh, VO at the beginning and the end are really, really important to yes. me uh, to, to make this puzzle fit together because it's literally him just saying like, yeah, uh, crazy shit happens. Here's some crazy shit. And then at the end, it's like, yeah, you, you don't believe it, but uh, it happened. <laughs> you just watched it, so it happened. It's like, a, it's like beyond belief factor fiction. Yeah. At the beginning <laughs> of the movie. False. We made it up. The, the, uh, a the couple... <laughs> Go on, Hunter. I'm Oh, no, I was just going to say another a thing that I saw a little bit of research. I don't know if this is actually confirmed at all, but some people said that part of the inspiration behind the Jimmy Gator thing, because, I mean, well, for one, he gets Me too before Me Too is a thing, like 20 years early. But also, apparently, it's inspired a little bit by uh, Woody Allen about how oh. it's just like an allegation. It's like a whole thing of like, I mean, because it's not really a lot, like, we're all led to believe like, yeah, he definitely, he was just like fucked up and probably molested his daughter. But like, it's all about like allegations and therefore it's like, well, do you believe this famous person who has all this clout or do you believe the woman in this situation? Do you yeah. believe the person with everything to lose or the person with nothing to lose? Yeah, exactly. And also the fact that like he works with kids at his job you know, it's like a kid's game show. So that oh, adds yeah. a, yet another yeah. layer. So he has every reason to lie. And <laughs> he has zero reason that she would ever lie about this. She's not even trying to bank off of it. She's literally just traumatized. Yeah, I mean, it's it would certainly explain, like, why she hates him and, like, doesn't even, like, stand to like see him or look at him. It's not It's not the best revelation in the movie. It is just kind of like, oh... Well, yeah. again, it's because that his wife character is very underwritten. 
to be honest, which, you know, that is a character that is maybe like the 20th most important in the movie. So of course she can't be like fully fleshed out, but the fact that this revelation is happening to a woman that we've barely seen and also has barely uh, said or felt anything significant yet. It's sort of, uh, bless you, Hunter. It's sort of, I don't know, it's just sort of... I thought uh, that I muted my mic so that nobody would hear that. It almost trivializes such an incredibly uh, severe moment, you know, because you're like, and he's telling it to her, and we care about her because it's his wife. Like, what? Well, we like we like Jimmy, too. We we like his character throughout the movie, and then that happens, and it's like, oh. Yeah, they didn't establish him as enough of an alcoholic shitbag. It shows shows him banging another woman. I was going to say, he's pretty well established as, like, nobody in this movie is a good guy except for maybe John C. Riley. John Seymour Hoffman. He might have racially profiled a black woman at the beginning oh, of the movie. he's not that good of a guy. Um, uh, but, and then also, probably Philip Seymour Hoffman is the best person in this movie, yes. but he also inadvertently killed a dog, so I don't know I, he how great of a guy he, he, he also He also got a Hustler magazine, too. Would a good mm. person get a porno mag delivered <laughs> to their house? He got, that that, he got that in order to call Frank. I love that scene. Oh, yeah. That's he's like, right, that's do you have bread and some peanut butter? And do you have that? Hustler? Uh, <laughs> you have so that? Also a penthouse? In, a penthouse? in the most beautiful way. He's almost like an observer of the movie. Like he's just, he, he doesn't even want to be swept up in all this bullshit, but it's affecting him so severely. You can, the depth when he cries, no oh. one gets redder when they, when they silently cry than Philip Seymour. Did. And the camera's like so fucking close to his face. It's yeah. so glorious. And again, this is like a good friend of PTAs and like, you know that he just knows exactly how to use him. So before we, we wrap up, we do have a voicemail uh, from our friend, Harry, friend of the pod, um, who has also seen Magnolia for the first time. Harry, by the way, a little bit of um, uh, behind the scenes in his quarantine, he is only watching things that he has never seen before exclusively. At least he's trying to from what he says. So yet another reason to check out magnolia if you haven't already but this is what he has to say hey there we bottom my crew this is harry sayer enjoying my forced semi vacation in quarantine as i'm sure you are as well uh and isn't this a great time to watch a bunch of movies that you wouldn't get to otherwise uh that's been my situation and uh to that end i just saw magnolia for the first time and um i don't know about all of you but i thought this movie was excellent and devastating and moving all in ways that I I didn't expect. Uh, I'm actually really, really not that familiar with Paul Thomas Anderson. I've seen uh, The Master years ago, which I don't really remember. I've seen There Will Be Blood uh, years ago that I don't really remember. And I did have seen uh, Punch Drunk Love, which I actually do remember a lot because it's one of my favorite movies of all time. And for some reason, I didn't realize these they were all made by the same director. So um, I have some homework to do. Uh, and yeah, to extend on that, uh, Magnolia was also something I did not know uh, much about going into and was shocked by the runtime. But um, I found this to be a really delightful and moving picture of some really lonely people, which to be honest is a kind of movie that I I love where everything's so harsh and sad that those quiet moments of 
beauty and grace and joy just stand out all the more. And, and in, those, in those times, it feels really earned. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a sprawling, deeply connected movie that, that really takes a while to get going, kind of by design, but by the time all the pieces are kind of spinning and interacting with each other, it's, it's not really like something I've seen before. Um, I mean, my personal favorites in the movie were uh, William H. Macy, I thought was one of the saddest characters, but you know, in particular that bar scene where he's screaming that for, for love is just one of those painfully sincere performances that you, I don't get to see a lot. And it, it just kind of made me happy in an in a odd way. And beyond that, you know, Tom Cruise is doing the craziest goddamn performance of his life. It's I can't believe I didn't know that this was something he was doing, where he plays this uh, shitbag pickup artist, uh, motivational speaker. And even he, I don't, I don't think he's ever a empathetic or likable character, but by the end when he's on the, his father's bedside and he lets all that rage out and that emotion, it's, it's not, again, empathetic, I would say, but you definitely understand this is a human. Um, the more I'm talking about it, it might actually be my favorite Tom Cruise performance, or at least in the top three. I think he's unbelievable in this movie. Um, yeah, and beyond that, you know, uh, just I think it's a perfect use of John C. Riley, who does bring that kind of sad sweetness to a lot of his serious roles. And but I think this is one of the best ways it's been used. Um, and and the ending is something that I'm a mark for. It's the kind of ending where it just ends perfectly and and sweetly, and it just makes you want to be better to everyone around you. And uh, don't we all? enjoy something like that in these in these uh, isolated times so thank you all for listening and uh, looking forward to being on the show sometime soon dumbo was great oh god <laughs> you bitch good plug, motherfucker good plug for dumbo Harry, never again you're not coming on the pod <laughs> are you fucking kidding me well all well right. said harry well said about yeah, dumbo no 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 oh <laughs> no no magnolia well, i mean, said it better well myself said- well said about Dumbo that it is the best Tim Burton movie. So I think we can all. Agree. Yeah, you know, Dumbo, Magnolia, both kind of on the same level of really big, sprawling, character-driven <laughs> epics uh, that get to the heart of yeah. the human experience, Animals. or in, you know, it, you know, elephant, human, whatever, ears, frogs, what have you. Should I Thank- should I watch Dumbo on Disney Plus? Harry? Oh God, no, no. Well, honestly, you you might as well. <laughs> what else are you doing? If you ask, if you ask the three of us, we're gonna say no. If you ask Harry, then he will give a resounding yes. That's somehow louder than us three saying no. So I yeah, guess he'll say, "Watch yeah. it; it's better than Magnolia." I'm if Harry, you I- if you want to see Michael Keaton hitting a bunch of random buttons and screaming his face <laughs> off because his park is burning to the ground, then it's the movie for you. Well, um, I, well, I did just watch Spotlight, so maybe I oh should, <laughs> you know make a double feature. Um, <laughs> the thing that I I most agree with though that is. At the end of the day, this movie, it can have great direction and performances, but it doesn't work unless it hits you like a train because a movie this long has to pay off emotionally. And this movie made me, it was, it wasn't the type of just like, like an ugly cry type deal, but it was, 
it's like he said, it makes you want to go out and like do something. It makes you want to like, like be a better person. It makes you want to like kind of reckon with like all of your own issues and flaws and traumas and like everything that makes you yourself. Um, and so in that way you could, there's, I could only call this movie a total success, uh, despite having like whatever gripes. This movie is so completely engrossing and entertaining despite being so insanely fucking long. And uh, you could call it, uh, what, what you could call it indulgent. Absolutely, mm -hmm. it is indulgent. Uh, the, he will readily admit that. Uh, and that's almost kind of the point is it's him being exactly. like, I'm going to, I'm going to cash in on the opportunity to do exactly what I want because uh, most people never get that chance. Yeah. And there's, there's little moments that make you feel that way about like connecting and, and like wanting to connect and wanting to be a better member of society. Like for me, it's the moment that John C. Riley like loses his gun and he's crying in the rain and he's like oh god please god help me out man i don't know why why did i do what i did like i i have felt that way before you know and and it's not this it is a great moment for him and his journey and his character but it's not even close to being the biggest moment in the movie it ends up being like this tiny little thing but those are the types of things that will stick with you and that that kind of goes back to my original point about this movie begging to be revisited because you ever I feel like every time I'm going to revisit this movie I'm going to find other little moments like that that I take away from as being the big human moments of the film yeah I uh, we'll see you next week I was going to say I personally we keep saying things like self-indulgent um I honestly, I don't have a problem with most of the time. I don't have a problem with self indulgence as long as there is a purpose and a vision behind it. Like Colin is on the pod, a uh, fellow David Lynch stand. All of Dave, everything David Lynch makes is the most self indulgent shit that you will ever see in your life. And it is by definition all so pretentious, but it all works beautifully. And yeah, because masterfully. Yeah, because it's interesting and inspired, and you know, artful. Yeah. You know, and yeah. an art is not gonna hit everybody the same way, and it's not going to affect everybody the same way, and 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 not everybody's even gonna like it. You know, like this movie, it has its haters because it's so expressive. And he puts so much of himself in it. And, and obviously, there are films from PTA that are much more detailed and labored over and, and I think rise above this one. But this one is so messy that it just comes off as being like more of this personal artistic statement. I did want to read a couple of quotes from reviews from back when the, the movie oh, was, no. uh, first came out. Um, so the New York Times uh, put out a review from Janet Maslin, and, and she wrote, When the group sing-along arrives, Magnolia begins to self-destruct spectacularly. <laughs> it's astonishing to see a film begin this brilliantly, only to torpedo itself in its final hour. 
But then she went on to say <laughs> that the film was saved from its worst, most reductive ideas by the intimacy of the performances and the deeply felt distress signals given off by the cast. So she's basically saying it would have been bad in, in, except for the fact that it was good. <laughs> Pretty yeah. much. Yeah, I mean, I don't like that scene either, but it doesn't ruin the movie at no, all. that's silly. It's, I mean, she's implying that she doesn't like her frog stuff either. The frog shit is so good. Yeah, it's yeah. awesome. <laughs> Thousands of frogs falling onto John C. Riley. Yeah, what else do you want out of a movie? Nice, yeah. <laughs> um, what else do you have, Ernie? Uh, Roger Ebert included it in his uh great movies list um yeah back in 2008 so about a t- 10 years after um and he said as an act of filmmaking so keep in mind this was a decade after the uh, uh, this one is not from the release as an act of filmmaking it draws us in and doesn't let go um so that's you know Roger Ebert himself um, but as far as like from the actual release, uh, let's see, we have from The Observer, the joyless universe that PTA presents <laughs> any more convincing than the Pollyanna optimism of traditional sitcoms. These lives are somehow too stunted and pathetic to achieve the level of tragedy. Scam. Time Magazine said, the result is a hard-striving, convoluted movie, which never quite becomes the smoothly reciprocating engine Anderson would like it to be. Yeah, this is like a devastating, uh, or not devastating, a divisive movie for 1999. And I think it was kind of forgotten about until maybe post There Will Be Blood. Yeah, like it was kind of just like, oh, let's it's leave that. Of, let's leave um, that in the late nineties. It's sort of his Jackie Brown. Yeah, yeah it could be. Yeah. A, it, al- it also makes you feel about the same way as Jackie Brown does. I think. Well, I mean, also similar to Jackie Brown, people go in after Boogie Nights, similar like how they did the after Pulp Fiction. Yeah, that's what I'm all saying. All these expectations for this fun time, and they're like, wait, what is? I have to think about like, this. No, this like, is going to yeah. be longer. And it's going to be more uh, pensive. Exactly. I like that. I like that comparison. No, yeah. When you when you think about it that like that for sure, because of the the fact that you know now we have a whole bunch of movies to think about the context of of the filmography for PTA and and Quentin, but back then they didn't have that. It was it was still a very fresh, hot young talent. So they were ready to just toss them away and be like, oh yeah, no, they don't. They don't really have what it takes. They had one good one, and maybe you know, maybe there's more, but not this one ain't it. Uh, and then it wasn't until later on that you know people start to realize, okay, maybe it wasn't what we expected, but it's still its own artistic statement in its own right. It's uh, the same thing with Unbreakable with the Shyamalan. After Sixth Sense, people were just like, "That's not what I liked." Yeah. Because now we have such a storied uh, uh, career for Shyamalan to contextualize. And we can be like, damn, I wish he would go back to me. <laughs> <Yeah. unbreakable. laughs> uh, any, anyone have any idea why the movie's called Magnolia, other than the fact that it just shows a Magnolia when it says Magnolia? Um, well, it's on, it all takes place in um, the, uh, what's it called? It's, it's not, San Fernando. Uh, the Valley, San Fernando Valley. And the main road in San Fernando Valley is Magnolia. 
There you oh, go. Okay. Oh. Oh, okay. I had no clue why it was called that, Magnolia. I thought it was that, an artistic statement where it's like, it doesn't mean a thing. <laughs> no, no, no. Well, there's nothing. there's that one scene where there's like multiple characters that drive past each other on the road or they're at like that intersection. They're all at the intersection of Magnolia. Ah, uh, okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. That makes sense. When the, when the frogs are falling? Um, right before that, whenever Rose is leaving because she finds out that Jimmy was fucking their daughter and Claudia's leaving the date. And, like, there's a few... I think William H. Macy is driving to, like, break into the place. Like, they're all driving right there around the same time, and it's all on Magnolia. Or at the crossroads of Magnolia. All right, boys. Any final thoughts on the film before we wrap it up? Watch it. It's... Watch it, like... Tom Cruise, God damn it, Tom! I cannot state enough how good Tom Cruise is in this movie. Give Tom Cruise a goddamn Oscar already. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's somewhere in my top like twenty five, thirty ish favorite movies of all time. It just kind of blows me away. Uh, I don't know. I I just love it. <laughs> yeah, I get yeah. I get sucked in. I love the anxious, nervous energy, and it just takes you on that ride. How many times do you think you've seen it? I can watch this movie probably once every three years, like every okay. two or three years, probably like four times. Okay. And I, I first watched it like around the time we graduated high school, somewhere around then. And you feel like you get more out of it each time you revisit it? Uh, I think so. Cause it's not like a movie. It's not like where, when I've rewatched it, I like it less how that, that tends to happen sometimes mm-hmm. where the magic kind of wanders off. I just find it oddly rewatchable despite how heavy of a movie it is. And I think it's because of how like it has a lot of energy to it. Yeah. And I I think again, just the performances is really what, what make it, even though the subject matter is so dark and, and like, it's about these lonely people, like Harry said, ultimately the, the performances are what kind of keep you uplifted because you're just like, man, I'm so connected to these people. Yeah. Just unbelievable acting. I'm not right. sure who I can recommend it to other than if you already like Paul Thomas Anderson. It's kind of a hard pitch. That's fair. I don't that's know if my a, parents would like it. You know, That's a good <laughs> point. Yeah, it's like it's not maybe the best like entry point into PTA. You know, like maybe watch like Phantom Thread first or um, I guess there will be blood. Maybe. I well, don't know. You, well, have you PTA seen PTA is in general is a Boogie hard Nights. guy. It's like. Yeah. yeah, Boogie Nights is probably his most accessible movie, but like, for, I mean, maybe Punch Drunk Love, from what I know about it. Again, I haven't sure. seen it, but like, there, there will be blood. I can't just be like, oh man, I recommend There Will Be Blood to everyone because that's yeah, like, exactly. Like, oh yeah. No, everyone I know, as soon as I meet him, I'm like, yo, you got to check out Eraserhead. Like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> that's basically what you did you to me and I, it didn't work. <laughs> Well, I, I think that the, the point here is that PTA doesn't make movies that are meant to be for everybody and that they're meant to be for mass audiences. That's not what he's into. That's not what he's in the business of doing. He's yep. in the business of doing big, bold, artistic statements. And that's what this is. So uh, I think we can leave it at that. Magnolia on Netflix right now. Check it out. Uh, thank you, Colin, for coming on. Uh, please stay safe, stay healthy, and all that stuff in this uh, crisis. Hopefully, we'll have you 
on again soon. If we're doing these Zoom uh, recordings, then we may as well try to have as many of our of our friends on the pod as possible. So, no, really, no, really. Thank, thank, thank you guys for having me on. I had a blast. Hell yeah! I'm glad you were a last minute addition, and it uh, yeah. really made this listenable <laughs> when it would not have been. It worked out. And uh, thanks, Harry, for your message. Um, We miss you and hope to have you on again soon. Thank you all for listening. Please follow us on social media. And you can also email us or send us voicemails. We bought a mic at gmail.com or anchor.fm slash we bought a mic. Next week, we don't know. There's no movies coming out. So we don't know what we're going to talk about, but it'll be something good. It'll be something worth checking out maybe another old movie maybe not maybe some Let's TV. Boogie nights, dude. yeah we can uh we'll just do a we'll turn to a pta pod and we'll just watch i mean he only has made seven movies eight including his like little watched first movie so heart eight you know, yeah heart eight um hey colin plug your podcast oh yeah uh, if you want to listen to me mumble more you can check out the snyder colin podcast available everywhere where podcasts are you can also follow me on twitter now i have a new twitter page and i'm having tons of fun on twitter now yes what 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 is your 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 twitter uh i think it's at kent apollo 4 reference that only hunter might understand yeah i do but i wish i didn't the number four kent apollo the the number four yeah not the roman numeral not Not iv yeah (laughs) (laughs) all right well yeah we'll link that in in the show notes if people want to follow you please go ahead and give colin a follow and give us all a follow on twitter at we bought a mic and all our respective twitters also letterboxd uh if anybody is out there on letterboxd we're all on letterboxd we'll plug that as well uh stay safe follow me Follow me and Colin on our Oscar watch through journey on Letterboxd. Yeah. Colin, you're doing that too? Yeah, I am. I'm not doing it in order like Hunter. I'm kind of just pick and choose. Yeah. Yeah, good. Hey, maybe maybe that could be another time we have you on. If if uh I I don't want to watch some random bullshit from like 1937. We could we could do we could do like a top 10 or something maybe. That, that Yeah. Could, or maybe yeah. or maybe once you guys get to like I don't know, the sound of music or, <laughs> um, I don't know, Silence of the hey, Lambs or something. Hey, I just, I watched uh, Alfred Hitchcock's Rebecca today in 1940, Best Picture winner. Okay. Great movie, okay? So Actually. it's not all, it's not all the Broadway melodies and Mutiny on the Bounties, okay? There is some good stuff in here. It's a mixed bag. It's how we feel about the Oscars every single goddamn year. Now. Yeah, nothing forever. has changed. Literally <laughs> nothing has changed is what I'm learning. What what beat was Magnolia nominated for Best Picture? No. It wasn't nominated. No. No. Damn. All right. Cruise was nominated. Uh Amy and I think that oh yeah, uh PTA was nominated for writing. American Beauty was 1999's like movie about dysfunctional like society. Yeah, that, like you could only have one away with. Yeah, one one day PTA will win all of the Oscars. I'm working oh, on yeah. an idea, you guys. Uh, the Oscars this year, we cancel them and we have a retcon Oscars. Whoa, I'm okay. here for it. Yeah, let's give Kubrick an Oscar. Let's give PT <laughs> like let's just give all exactly. these gods that never got one. Tom Cruise, you're getting your Oscar. This is the year that Tom Cruise wins an oh, Oscar. I had I had one final thought about Tom Cruise before we end. One day, I hope 
that Tom Cruise will make a movie that both showcases his physical skills as a stunt performer and as a dramatic actor like we saw in Magnolia. John Wick 4. And that will be the greatest movie ever made. He'll Think make about his it. The Fighter. No, I, I, no, no, no. It'll be, it'll be something we <laughs> no, can't okay. even conceive of. It'll be something new. And Tom Cruise is a professional poi player. He's in. And he's at the end of his comeback rooms. project. Yeah, he'll Dumbo play Lance too. Armstrong. He'll play Lance Armstrong in the Lance Armstrong biopic. I'm telling you guys, great you idea coming around here, guys. <laughs> All right, well. I think we got we to gotta end it there. So thanks for listening. And remember, respect the cock. Bye. Bye. <laughs> and tame the cunt.